This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Samuel 18. One of the values we ascribe to here at ABC is the importance of gospel community. Um, the, the church, and by the church, I don't mean the building, I mean the people, and I don't just mean this group of people, but the worldwide global body of believers is meant to be the dwelling place of God. We have looked at that theme uh, in, on other occasions. And as the dwelling place of God, this, this community of people is meant to, to give others a breath of fresh air. It's supposed to be unique in the world today. The people are supposed to experience something they don't experience anywhere else when they're part of a local church. And uh, we, look, we took a look at this back in August when we preached through our values. We looked specifically then at the topic of spiritual friendship. And as God's providence would have it, we are in a passage of Scripture that discusses the same topic. So I take that as meaning God is trying to get something across to us. So we're going to be looking at um, three aspects to friendship this morning from the story that's in front of us. We're going to look at the importance of friendship, the nature of friendship, and how to be the kind of friend you always wanted. The importance of friendship, the nature of friendship, and how to be the kind of friend you've always wanted. First, the importance of friendship. Now, this is interesting. The the importance of friendship is seen in how the author structures chapters 18 to 20. Chapters 18 to 20, 1 Samuel, is a literary unit. It's a self-contained literary unit. The importance of friendship is seen in how the author chooses to structure what takes place in those three chapters. Let me set the context. David has defeated Goliath. We looked at that last week. God has continued to give David great military success, and the people all recognize this, and they pour out their love for him, they pour out their appreciation for him. All of that serves to incite Saul's jealousy. And in these three chapters, Saul becomes murderously envious of David, of his success, of his popularity, so much so that Saul makes six attempts on David's life in three chapters. Six times he tries to kill David. The first three are covert or spontaneous, impulsive. The last three are overt, deliberately planned, launched campaigns to assassinate him. So Saul is portrayed as a man determined to rid this world of David. So for David, as you can imagine, this is the most dangerous time of his life, the most dangerous time of his life. And what makes this even more dangerous is that Saul has appointed David to a position of leadership within his administration because he wanted to keep a close eye on him. So David is living in Saul's household, and every so often, Saul will go off uh, on these fits of rage, and he'll try to kill David. Now, all the while, David is, is doing his best to ride out the storm. It's clear as you read through the story, David has no desire to be a permanent enemy of Saul. He's he's hoping that at some point these fits of rage would just eventually dissipate. Well, immediately before 
this dangerous, threatening chapter in David's life, we have just a few verses that talk about his friendship with Jonathan. So at the beginning of chapter 18, here's what we read. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing. He gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. This is right before, now the rest of this starts to unpack a bit, Saul's murderous uh, envy of, of David and his attempts on his life. And then after all of that takes place, at the end of chapter 20, here's what we have. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So there's covenant making at the beginning, covenant renewal at the end, and in between that, there's all this turmoil of David trying to survive Saul's murderous jealousy. The narrator is telling us something by structuring the text this way. See, ancient literature didn't just record facts in chronological order. The way they recorded them was meant to convey meaning. It's not just the verses or the words themselves or the paragraphs themselves. The way in which literature is structured is meant to convey meaning. So what is the narrator trying to tell us? Well, quite literally, David's friendship with Jonathan brackets the evil. So literally, we're being shown that David's friendship with Jonathan contained the evil. Saul's evil against David didn't overwhelm him. It didn't drown him. In fact, David's friendship with Jonathan made the evil bearable. It made it survivable. He never would have made it. He never would have survived without his friendship with Jonathan. Now look, maybe you've not had six attempts on your life. But you're going to have troubles. You're going to have tragedies. You're going to have difficulties. You're going to have storms in your life. And I mean, let me tell you something. I think the text is telling us you're going to sink without friends. You're going to sink without friends. Friendship sustains your life through times like these. Now, there have been numerous studies conducted on the influence of friendship on one's health. A few years ago, the Atlantic did a study uh, published under the title, What Makes Us Happy? And one of the conclusions reached is that happiness is directly attributed to close friendships. It's a number of other things, but one of the things they notice is that people who are happy, express that they're happy, have deep friendships with people. The New York Times published an article a few years ago entitled, The Island Where People Forget to Die, which discusses life on the little-known island of Ikaria in the Aegean Sea. Life expectancy rates on that island are substantially higher than in the U.S., And numerous factors likely play a part of that. But the writer of this piece contends strongly that the social structure, which is unlike anything we have in the States, the way relationships are formed, the way they're nurtured, is unlike what we have here. Now, maybe what all these studies are telling us is what we already have in our Bibles. Friendship sustains your life. It makes life survivable. It makes it bearable. It keeps you buoyant during times 
of storms. This is the importance of friendship. Second, let's look at the nature of friendship. Uh, The story gives us three aspects to it. Three aspects to the nature of friendship. Three aspects to it. It's spiritual, it's committed, and it's humble. And we'll look at each of these three. True friendship, true friendship is spiritual, it's committed, and it's humble. First, it's spiritual. In verse 1, we're told that Jonathan became one in spirit with David. Now, what's going on here? Well, it's, it's idiomatic Hebrew. It's more, than, uh, it's more than having a really good vibe about somebody. Okay? It's more than that. It's much more than that. Now, that, now David and Jonathan, maybe they had a really good vibe about each other. But it's, it's more than being feelings-based. It's more than feeling good about some person in your life. There are spiritual overtones in this friendship. And that is they possess a strikingly similar spiritual posture before God. Let me show it to you. In 1 Samuel 14, we get a glimpse into Jonathan's posture before God. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Last week, we looked at this passage from 1 Samuel 17, describing David. David said to the Philistine, to Goliath, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike, down, strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. So they have a strikingly similar Uh, posture before God, despite extreme differences. We're going to look at those differences in a minute. But they shared and enjoyed uh, uh, conviction about God. They they were both men after God's own heart. Jonathan saw in David someone in tune with God as he was, someone who believed in God's greatness, who who exercised a tremendous amount of dependability and and, uh, faith and trust in what God was doing. They shared the same spiritual priorities. Now, there's a paradox here that I want to highlight to you. Because on the one hand, if I was to come to you and say um, that I need you to help me forward in my Christian walk, and and maybe I believe that God has appointed you as a means of grace to help me forward in my Christian walk, I can say that. But on the other hand, I have to say that the only way you can really help me is by doing something or saying something which will cause me to depend on God and not you. So it's a paradox. It's a radical approach to friendship. Because how do we typically think of a friend? We think of a friend as as someone who has something, possesses something, they offer something within them we perceive we need that keeps us coming back to them. We've created dependence on them. We've created dependence on them, a personality we mesh with, a disposition we find attractive, similar worldviews, similar interests, whatever. And inside the spaghetti strands of our heart's motivations, we approach friendship as a way to demonstrate to the other how much they need you. And we can subtly think, you need me. You need what I have to offer. Nobody can give you what I give you. But that's not friendship. A true friend is much more than someone who possesses a personality you mesh with. A true friend is much more than someone who has a disposition you find attractive or or a similar worldview or similar interests. A true friend is spiritual. That is, a true friend causes you to depend on God, not them. That's a true friend. 
They push you forward in your dependence on God, not them. They don't attempt to get you to depend on them. They work to get you to depend on God. So true friendship is spiritual in nature. Second, it's committed. In verse 3, we're told that Jonathan and David made a covenant. What is this covenant business? Well, let's do this by conducting a study in contrast and comparison. In the business world, uh, you would, uh, there's what you would call consumer-vendor relationships. Right? If, you have, if you're a consumer, you have a relationship with a vendor. And as long as that vendor meets your needs at an acceptable cost to you, um, you, you continue the relationship, right? So a consumer relates to the vendor as long as that vendor meets your needs at an acceptable cost to you. Now, if you find another vendor who gives you better service or gives you the same service at a better cost, you're under no obligation to stay with that vendor. You move on to the next one. That's the business relationship. It's the model of the marketplace. But a covenantal relationship is very different. Obviously, consumer-vendor relationships have no constancy to them. You're always changing. You're swapping it out. You're moving on. A covenant relationship, however, is different because in a covenant relationship, it's not, that relationship is not a means to an end of fulfilling your individual needs. The covenant relationship is the end itself. A covenant relationship is steady and it's committed. What's important is not the permanence of having needs met, but the permanence of the relationship. So so your own circumstances, whether your needs are being met or not, is secondary to seeing the relationship sustained and seeing the other person in that relationship thriving. It's not your individual needs. So if you're a consumer, your individual needs would take precedent. If you're not getting your needs met, you change to another vendor. But in a covenant relationship, rights come after responsibility. In a covenant relationship, your needs are put below the responsibility for the relationship and the thriving of the other person. Your needs come second, the relationship and the other person come first. We've got the difference between the two. Here's what's interesting. Academicians and sociologists have noted that consumer-vendor relationships have always existed because there have always been businesses. But prior to the past 60 years, in most cultures, those consumer-vendor relationships were confined to the business world. All other relationships were covenantal. Family relationships, friend relationships, neighbor relationships, where you didn't uh, just get out once your needs weren't being met because there was a commitment to the relationship. Your needs weren't as important as the thriving of the other person. Academicians and sociologists have noted that there has been a substantial change over the past 60 years. Robert Bella, Charles Taylor have written extensively on this. That What they're saying is that the model of the marketplace has spread out and become the basis for conducting all relationships so, so that all relationships are done on a market basis. Family relationships, friend relationships, religious relationships, they're all done on a cost-benefit analysis. If I'm getting my needs met, I'm happy to stay in the relationship, but if not, I'm out of here. So what's the point to all this? It's very simple. Consumers are not friends. 
Consumers are not friends. We need friends, not consumers. Consumers are fake friends. Now, in the book of Proverbs, the way the, way, um, the book of Proverbs approaches this is often with the example of money. Fake friends cozy up to those who have money. Fake friends cozy up to those who have money. And once they realize they're no longer getting what they want out of it, what do they do? As the book of Proverbs presented, they leave, they get out. They're fake friends. They're consumers. But there are other ways, other than money, there are other ways to use people. Some people get close to pastors or politicians or athletes or entertainers. Why? Because they want access. They want power. They want popularity. They're getting close for that purpose. That's a consumer. That's not a friend. So think about Jonathan. The moment he enters into this covenant with David, he experiences a friendship deficit. His father is Saul. His father's vitriol for David puts Jonathan in an untenable position. None of his needs are being met. Read the story from front to, front to back. None of Jonathan's needs are being met. It's the perfect condition for him to get out if he approached this as a consumer-vendor relationship. But he doesn't. Why? Because his needs are not as important as the thriving of the other person. His needs are not as important as David's flourishing. The true friendship is spiritual. That is, a true friend helps you rely on God, not them. A true friend is committed. It's covenantal in nature. That is, your needs aren't as important as the thriving of the other person. And third, a true friend is humble. Jonathan takes off his royal wardrobe. He takes off his royal armament, and he gives them all to David. It's an incredibly powerful gesture. He's making a costly sacrifice. David was a nobody. Remember this. He's not the oldest brother. He's not the strongest. He's not the best looking. He's the short runt at the end of the litter. Jonathan is the son and heir of Saul. Jonathan and David have no business being friends. Jonathan's from the marketplace, uh, from the palace, excuse me. David is from the field. Jonathan is educated. David is not. Jonathan's from the right kind of family. David is not. Jonathan's a soldier. David is shepherd. Jonathan, listen to this. Jonathan is probably 30 years David's elder. I know that when we grow up, we see the, the, the uh, cartoon drawings of this. They portray them as the same age. That's, that's, not, that's a bunch of malarkey. They're not the same age. Read the story. Do the math. If you read it carefully, if you do the math, here's what you find. Saul reigned for 40 years. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. This means David wasn't even born when Saul began to reign. And in 1 Samuel 13, towards the beginning of Saul's reign, Jonathan is already a military leader in Israel's army. So when you picture the friendship here, Jonathan, at very least, Jonathan is probably around 45 years old and David 15 when this is happening. So this 45-year-old son of the king, heir apparent to the throne, soldier well-educated from a royal family in his prime, 
sees God is with David. And he gets off the throne for a shepherd teenage boy from a rural, uneducated family. Jonathan is demonstrating unbelievable, incomprehensible humility in his covenant friendship with David. One pastor defines humility in this story this way. He says, humility is having the wisdom to see what God is up to and being okay with it no matter how it affects you. Humility is having the wisdom to see what God is up to and being okay with it, no matter how it affects you. It's Jonathan. Jonathan thought he'd be the next king, but he sees what God is up to. He sees that God is with David every step he takes. He sees David as the true heir apparent to the throne, and Jonathan's okay with it. Even though on paper, Jonathan may be a better candidate, on paper, he's more suited to the office. He sees that God is with David And he's okay with it. In a biography of Oscar Wilde, there's a discussion of Wilde's proposition that the good fortune of one's friends makes one discontent. That's his proposition. The good fortune of one's friends is what makes you discontent. And in the context of discussing this premise, there was a story told of a devil crossing the Libyan desert where he comes to a spot where there are a number of junior demons tormenting a holy hermit. And this holy hermit, this this holy saint, is easily shaking them off. And the devil turns to his junior demons and says, what you're doing here is too crude. Permit me for a moment. So he goes up to this holy hermit and he whispers in his ear, your brother has just been made the bishop of Alexandria. And a scowl of malignant jealousy comes across the face of the hermit immediately. That, says the devil, is the sort of thing I recommend. Leonard Bernstein, great conductor of the New York Philharmonic, said it well. He was once asked, what's the most difficult instrument in the orchestra to play? What's the most difficult instrument? Without hesitation, he said, second fiddle. He said, I can find plenty of first violinists but I can hardly get somebody to play second fiddle with the same enthusiasm. Jonathan does. That's a true friend. The nature of true friendship is it's spiritual. They help you depend on God more. It's committed. True friends are more interested in the thriving of the other person than getting their needs met. True friendship demonstrates humility. true true, True friends play second fiddle with enthusiasm. They see what God is up to and they're okay with it no matter how it affects them. So third, how can we be the kind of friend that we've always wanted? Our natural impulse at this point, I think, is to go shopping. We scour the landscape for who can be that for me. Yeah, We've immediately become a consumer. We've immediately become a consumer. Once we look at the landscape, we say, who can be this for me? We've become a consumer. Different approach. Different approach. How can I be that for someone else? Or to whom can I be this kind of friend? We have a resource that Jonathan didn't have. There's a famous passage in John 15 where Jesus is speaking with his disciples. 
probably familiar with it. Jesus says to them, I no longer call you servants. I don't call you servants. I call you friends. Friends. Because a servant doesn't know his master's business. But everything I've learned from the Father, I have made known to you, Jesus says. And then you have this famous place where Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jonathan laid down his life for his friend David. You see that in the story? He lost his privileges. He lost his comforts. He lost his conveniences. In other words, Jonathan actually... Jonathan intentionally made his life harder in order to make David's life better. Jonathan intentionally made his life harder in order to make David's life better. So Jonathan endures wounds for the sake of the flourishing and the thriving of his friend David. And through those wounds, David was released into his full potential. But there's something Jonathan and David didn't know that we know. Jesus came into the world to be the ultimate friend. Jesus took off his robe. He lost his throne. He took off his sword. He became vulnerable. He lost his divine invulnerability and died on the cross for sinners. And what does that mean? We become heirs, not to a temporal earthly throne, but to an eternal heavenly one. Jonathan endured much to provide David with a life of flourishing. Jesus endured more to provide us with an endless life of even greater flourishing. In other words, Jesus made his life infinitely harder to make your life infinitely better. The degree to which you see what Jesus did to make you his friend is the degree you will go to to be that kind of friend to someone else. You want to become the kind of friend you've always wanted. It doesn't start with putting together a just-do-it list. If you want to become the kind of friend that you've always wanted, it starts by pondering deeply, thinking deeply, meditating deeply, praying through what Jesus did to make you his friend. We love others because Jesus first loved us. The order is important. I once witnessed this on a human level. There was a family, um, not here, they were newer to the church where I was serving on staff, and, and uh, this, the family had little in the way of church background. They had attended churches very sporadically throughout their years growing up, but they showed up at our church and visually just appeared disheveled, out of sorts. Our staff and volunteer teams took care of them, and their kids, and as time wore on, they began to open up about some of their struggles, one of which was deep financial trouble. And so we connected them with our care team who went to work on providing them with short-term financial aid. They sat down with them to do some financial counseling with them. It's just the way the church worked. Little did I know how much of an impact this was having on them. They were completely blown away by it so surprised by it that it radically transformed this family. They began attending more and more frequently. They got involved, and then they began to have their antennae up for families who were in the very predicament they understood so well. 
Fast forward in the story, they became some of the best lovers of families who were down and out that I have ever seen. How did they get there? They became, they became the kind of friends they've always wanted by first experiencing, first experiencing the kind of friends they've always wanted. The order's important. The degree to which you see what Jesus did to make you his friend is the degree you'll go to to be that kind of friend of someone else. Let's pray. Jesus, your life is an amazing demonstration of true friendship. You made your mission clear, and that was to seek and save the lost, to bring sinners to repentance, to bring sinners into union with you. And through all of it, none of us ever met your needs. And even though we didn't meet your needs, you didn't abandon it. You didn't abandon the friendship. You remain committed to the Father's plan of reconciling sinners to Himself. Your whole life and ministry was characterized by humility. Jesus, we look at what You did and can see with incredible clarity that You made Your life infinitely harder in order to make ours infinitely better. You call us friends. It's an overwhelming truth to take in. But Jesus, I pray that you'd help us to experience now our friendship with you so that we can be the kind of friend to others that we've always wanted. We need your help, Jesus. We ask for it in your name alone. Amen.